study. Anything like the conditions we are currently experiencing. I am mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally, intellectually, and academically developed and acutely aware of the condition of African people throughout the entire world. We don't want fortune, we don't want popularity, we want power. Power. And power comes only from the organized masses. Welcome to a special edition of 1919 Radio. My name is Mohammed and I'm your host. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jared Ball, scholar and author of I Mix What I Like, a Mixtape Manifesto, as well as The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power. I speak to him about his books, Mixtape Radio, Emancipatory Journalism, and the Gentrification of Black Music and Media. 1919 Radio was first started to challenge the gentrified club spaces in Toronto, by hosting a community-based platform for independent DJs. We wanted to host an educational interview with Dr. Ball to reintroduce our radio and platform as multimedia projects rooted in anti-colonial resistance, emancipatory journalism, and cooperative community power. I hope you enjoy the show. Can you begin by introducing yourself, your platform, and the work that you do? Sure. Uh, <clears throat> well, my name is Jared Ball, and professionally, I am a professor of media and African American, African diaspora studies at Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, and I curate uh, the multimedia website, imixwhatilike.org, and try to support as many grassroots political and cultural and media and journalistic uh, movements and efforts as I can. My first question is about uh, I Mix What I Like. Uh, a central concept in your book is this notion of a colonized rhythm nation. Can you describe what you mean by it? Uh, and what does internal colony theory, um, this idea of a cohesive African America, uh, mean for Black music and media broadly? Well, the colonized, colonized rhythm nation I, <laughs> a phrase comes from uh, Professor, is it Norman Kelly? It's not Robin D.G. Kelly. I think it's Norman Kelly, okay. who I got that from. But the, the source is obviously cited in the book. I just can't uh, remember exactly off the top of my head. I think it is that. Um, uh, which I thought for, fit perfectly within the, the work, I, the, 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 within what I was trying to do with that work, which was to cent center this concept of internal colonialism for Black America here in the United States. Uh, and the, so the, the, the idea is just simply that, just simply that to the extent there is a black community, it is, uh, or a black nation, it is colonized internally in the United States. And that the point I was trying to make is that, uh, similar to many others, uh, I was trying to extend the tradition of those who were saying this internal colonialism meant or means that the more or less the traditional relationships that are established through a colonial process exist here. Mm -hmm. Extraction, exploitation, uh, physical and social and economic and political distance and difference. Uh, and so, and then in the, in the context of hip hop or music or cultural expression, the same processes exist that a, a black community here that is socially and physically segregated still to this day, 
uh, has its cultural production mined like any other natural resource, packaged, uh, produced, owned, and redistributed, sold by uh, a, a dominant mother country uh, with all of the wealth and benefits uh, accruing to that mother country uh, while the colony itself devolves. So just, just simply put, in, in summary, the, over the course and history of hip hop in this country, uh, 50 years or so, uh, the black community has produced billions. And I think at the time we were talking about $40 billion a year all told. Uh, uh, but uh, the, the conditions in those communities have actually worsened. So that's the, I was trying to just quickly identify and I think more appropriately contextualize that process. What is the role of uh, mass media and American cultural production in shaping and erasing um, political consciousness? And what role does independence um, black media play here? Well, media and propaganda in the United States play the dominant role more than any other force uh, in managing consciousness, manipulating uh, public opinion, or as has been popularly said uh, by Ed Herman and Noam Chomsky, manufacturing consent. Uh, that is their primary, and I would argue even sole function. Uh, you know, so... Um, well, independent black media, to the extent that it has ever existed or exists today, is, has been to uh, offer up messaging and cultural expression that encourage different forms of organization uh, and, and, and response to the conditions faced by black people. Um, I don't know how much you want to get into it, but there's, I think, a, a lot of room to argue, again, to what extent is there or has there ever been an independent black media mm -hmm. uh, and to what extent that media uh, perform, you know, sort of the roles they're popularly conceived of performing that is encouraging something other than a dominant narrative or, or expression. But uh, uh, that that has at least traditionally been part of what uh, independent black media has 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 done um, here has provided space for people to communicate ideas and, and culture that uh, are not accepted or sanctioned and uh, that has been uh, invaluable to political struggle. In your book, you also talk about mixtape radio as a tool of anti-colonial resistance. Uh, can you expand on that and what you mean by emancipatory journalism? Well, I'll start backwards. Emancipatory journalism <clears throat> uh, is a, a concept that was uh, coined and, and developed largely by Professor Hemant Shaw, uh, a professor of journalism in, in uh, I think, University of Madison, Wisconsin, and um, uh, and simply put, is just is just a historical. Uh, application of journalism or a philosophy of journalism applied by those who were colonized in response to colonization. And it, that argues that journalism and media must be produced and practiced by and for those in anti-colonial political struggle. So uh, uh, not that you shouldn't be sound and researched and honest, but that you should not be biased or that you mm -hmm. should not, uh, 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 you, that you should not 
eschew bias. You should not avoid bias, that you should be biased in favor of your political struggle and you should be performing your work as part of an organized effort to end that oppressive relationship. Um, and uh, uh, as I saw mixtape radio, you know, at the time I was arguing, nowadays I don't, I don't it, it would have to, <clears throat> And and hopefully you and your crew can do this, but it would have to be rebranded re and reformed because the 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 mixtape that I was primarily talking about was uh, an analog, hard mm -hmm. copy, uh, low tech, uh, offline, yeah. literal CD or cassette that would be distributed that would contain art and content and and music and pol and, and and journalism and politics that you couldn't get in terrestrial radio or mainstream media. Uh, you, and it was just to, to, to borrow from or extend the history of the hip hop mixtape, which is an underappreciated history that that is without the mixtape, without DJs being able to create uh, cassette tapes and CDs uh, that uh, with music and blends and messaging that could not be found on radio, there would be no expo explosion of hip hop. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. that was, as Angela Ards put years, years ago, uh, hip hop's original uh, mass media. So uh, uh, and as a lover of mixtapes my whole life, and then as at one point a, a producer of at least a journalistic form of them, uh, you know, I wanted to just to try to make an argument around politicizing that history. Uh, and 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 more than even um, and honestly, even more than anything practical, I think, to make the argument that it it that of an approach to this history and a recognition of this history would help, I think, better interpret the, the current condition and offer mm -hmm. up other analyses and explanations and responses to it. Um, that, in other words, the mixtape can, I think, the history of the mixtape, I think, does expose the colonial relationship that black people have in this country and elsewhere to, to the state. Can you elaborate on that last point? Well, I mean, you know, so first of all, you have, you know, the history of hip hop, you have, you have, you know, the, what are known as the core and original elements of, of DJ, b-boying, emceeing and graffiti emerging uh, out of the poorest, most oppressive black and brown communities in the United States. Uh, that are themselves comprised of an African diaspora that that's mm -hmm. coming from the Caribbean, that's coming from the continent, that's coming from up your way in 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 Canada down to New York and down to the east coast of the United States, where Harlem historically had become the Pan African African diaspora mecca, pun in, pun intended, so to speak, for the African world. So mm -hmm. uh, uh, and within the in, within the United States, with all the internal migrations forced and otherwise north to south, west to east, east to west, et cetera, you have uh, at, at the time this the, the creation of this black Mecca uh, uh, in, in Harlem, in New York City, more broadly, et cetera, where uh, and of course, in the Bronx, where it said and although there's some, you know, debates around that you know we're bronx and 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 some argue even in, in pre previously in queens you know it, anyway in new york it emerges but it's emerging as a response to colonial conditions it's 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 whether it's black people having uh uh the the programs cut to uh that would have m more people being taught traditional musical instruments 
um, you, you know, you have that cut and then you have people start moving towards stereos and you have the technology coming from Europe of, uh, uh, of um, mixing boards and turn, you know, turntable technology, all, you know, and, and, and new music coming from, you know, all other parts of the world. And then you have all of that sort of coalescing in a moment uh, where black and brown people here would start taking these and combining them with existing in other traditions also in a context of not having access to any sort of mainstream media. Black radio didn't even want to play rap music initially. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then saying, well, okay, fine. We're going to steal electricity from street lamps. We're going to set up in the park since we don't have, you know, stadiums and clubs to play in. We're going to, we're, we're, since we can't get on the radio, we'll record to a, a mixtape, we'll record to a, a cassette and we'll distribute that throughout the community all the way up and down the East Coast of the United States, even to where I was in Maryland, getting mixtapes from New York as a kid uh, and hearing music that was, there was no radio for it. There was no, there was, it, there was, it was, that was it. So that's how, it, you know, so it, so it creates this underground medium of uh, where the mixtape literally carried hip hop beyond its its original boroughs and, and communities into to the broader the United States and 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 made it, grow to a point where it had to be, as I would at least argue, colonized, co-opted and turned into the commercial bastardization that we have now, mm -hmm. uh, at least in terms of its mainstream form. So that's that, uh, you know, so the mixtape to me always again represents it is it is, you know, it is the underground newspapers of, of other places and times. It's the underground, you know, cassette tapes of people in, in Eastern Europe trying to, to, to communicate when, when uh, an overreaching communism was suppressing them. It's the, the Radio Free Dixie of Robert Williams broadcasting from Cuba to the Southern part of the United States advocating black liberation. It, it, it's, it's, the, it's the Underground Railroad communication you know, that was intercontinent, you know, intercontinental mm. here, you know, through in the Western hemisphere that somehow enabled Africans to escape up and down, uh, um, you know, the, 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 the continent. So how, you know, you know um, so to me, the mixtape just represents an extension of all of that, of underground mm. journalism, of the radical, you know, kind of, of broadcasting and media that is unsanctioned, that leads to and supports radical political uh, movements. Ten years on, uh, you know, from publication, um, corporate power has only consolidated even further. The so-called musical OPEC is now three after Universal purchased EMI in 2012. Uh, how have things changed, and how have how has streaming services like Spotify affected everyone or and everything? I should say. Look, Harold Ennis was right years ago talking about a Canadian um, uh, who wrote the bias of communication in the 50s. Uh, um, and he was right. Advances in media or communicative technology enhance or enable further consolidation of power. Mm -hmm. So from the printing press to today, the more highly technical communication becomes, the more consolidated the power that is that controls it. So now, uh, just in terms of the, the context we're talking here, with Spotify and uh, uh, you know iTunes and now YouTube Music, which is the number one music distribution network now, um, you have an even increased consolidation. So YouTube is owned by Google. YouTube's music is run by Lee or Cohen, 
who was the same horrific corporate uh, destroyer that people have been pointing to in hip hop going back to the 80s, who has been, wow. you know, uh, you, you know, so he's right back on top. So you talk about what hasn't changed. You know, it's literally the same man has even more power today to influence who becomes famous, who gets the, you know, people have to, you know, look, people have to understand fame is, is political, it has nothing to do with talent, although talent is important. Uh, so I shouldn't say it has nothing to do with talent. I should say talent is not the number one determinant and it is not necessarily required uh, as there have been plenty of untalented people who have become enormously popular. The, the, the mechanism of popularity is political. Celebrity is political. Uh, as I've often said, you cannot be rich, famous and radically political. At, at you know, History is clear. There is no example of someone sustaining uh, being rich uh, um, famous and radically political all at the same time. Maybe one of the three, maybe two of the three, but there is there is no, I'm, I'm literally unaware of any exception to that rule. Once you become rich and famous, if you are radically political, your career is gonna get destroyed or worse. Mm -hmm. um, and, and history is replete with examples of that. Uh, um, uh, aren't we about to celebrate Bob Marley's, isn't Bob Marley's birthday coming up? I think we're getting close to Bob Marley's birthday. I don't know. Anyway, he's a perfect example. <clears throat> uh, you know, as soon as he's rich and famous and radical, he's he's gone, and he's rebranded as someone who is, you know, uh, every little thing is going to be all right, and let's just smoke a lot of weed. Yeah. And all of the radical messaging is wiped away and rebranded and repackaged. Michelle Stevenson has done some great work on that, by the way. Just anybody wants to go back and look at that. Anyway, so my my. Uh, uh, um, uh, anyway, just just sim just simply that 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 um, the process of, of of popularity is managed. So musically, to get pl placed at the top of uh, Spotify or YouTube or or any other platform, you it is a payment relationship. It's a payola relationship where someone is mm -hmm. paying for that placement. It's a relationship that is manicured. Uh, over decades, people like Paul Porter have done great work on this. Uh, Rolling Stone even put out a, an article, I think last year, or, or uh, a couple of articles with uh, last year or two talking about how even uh, as we move to digital new platforms, that process of payola or pay for play has has remained. Um, so so it, it, it is a relationship where the, the, the really the only three record labels that can afford to do this, uh, Universal Music Group, which is number one, Sony, number two, and Warner, number three, a distant number three, but still number three, um, they can pay to have their artists promoted and placed so that when you click, the algorithm tells you that this artist will show up and that artist will show up mm -hmm. and this artist. It's all, this is the, the, the experience that we have online, which is another conversation, is an entirely manicured experience itself. So this idea that we're just entering a, a free and open internet is, is entire mm -hmm. mythology, particularly at this point. So, uh, um, this makes it, despite what many I think argue and claim, it makes it harder for alternative so-called or different artists to be heard or seen. So when you are able to do all this promotion, you're also to create a marginal space for everybody else to be pushed into. Uh, um, so, you know, uh, uh, we can have this conversation, anyone can have a conversation, but th those that are promoted and paid and placed will get more attention. It's the same way with music. Um, 
and uh, uh, th these new platforms, even the, the, and I was even just looking at it a couple of weeks ago for another presentation. And I'm sorry, I don't have the specifics right in front of me, but if you look, uh, and if you want, I'll, I'll dig it out real quick. But if you look carefully, you'll see that artists are paid less per digital download or, or, or uh, a stream today than they were paid for uh, spins on radio traditionally, historically, or sales of CDs uh, or records historically. So in other words, artists are more exploited today uh, for their product than they have been historically, despite this appearance of everybody's out here, everybody can get it, everybody is, you know, has an opportunity. Uh, it, it, it is unfortunately uh, something very different. Doesn't matter if you can walk away with a hard copy of a CD or a record or you just lose your stream because they shut down your account. To me, what's more important is the process that would have encouraged you to buy the album or the CD or the cassette historically is the same process fully intact that encourages you to stream or have a playlist of certain artists on a digital platform today. Uh, and that, that, that process is controlled by an, an, a handful of very wealthy white men. That's why they say mm -hmm. Lucian Grange, who is the head who owns, uh, or is the head at least of Universal Music Group, is they still to this day call him the most powerful man in the music business. So how is this white French man who has got to be in his seventies or something at this point, has more, literally has more control over the music you and I hear and that the students that end up in my classroom here than anything you and I could do. He's determining the artists that they are in, 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 introduced to and that they are in, that through imposition are encouraged to believe that they like. Um, and that's even, that's done, I think, even more easily today than it was done when I was coming up. Let's shift gears to talk about um, your newest book, The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power. Can you define what you mean by black buying power and how is it a myth? Well, what I mean by black buying power is that it doesn't exist. What, what, what people are encouraged to believe that black buying power means is that there is this 1.3 or 4 or $5 trillion pool of money that black people sit on and foolishly spend on frivolous goods. Uh, when, in, when instead they could become more quote unquote financially literate and uh, save and deposit and invest that money and increase their wealth and close the racial wealth and income inequality gaps. Um, that I'm saying, and I think, uh, not I think, I have proven, uh, forgive the, the, the uh, and, it, and, it, uh, and honestly, it's not a matter of arrogance. It's a matter of simplicity. It's, it's, it really is not a complicated issue. If you look at the way the claim of, of the 1.3 trillion is, is made, it's easily dis, 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 uh, um, uh, uh, dismissed as false. And then if you look at the actual data of the condition of black people in this country, economically, you see that there is no quote unquote power in that economic relationship. Power in the phrase buying power is, is defined based on those who created the phrase, which are marketers and advertisers. So it means the ability to spend money and enrich those who own various goods and services that you'll buy, which are not black people. 
So it's the, the power and buying power as a phrase is a measurement of the ability of black people to enrich white corporations. So um, what I've done in the book is just outline the history of it and the, the, the method and mechanism by which, just as I was saying in terms of music uh, uh, popularity and celebrity, by which you know I, I outline the process by which this myth is prop propagated and popularized and the context in which that is done and why it's done. And then I show uh, uh, how it is in fact, you know, created uh, out of a single, literally one source whose data is itself based on, as they say themselves, estimates and projections. It's, and it has nothing to do with income and wealth. And I just show why it all happens in that, that in other words, to say uh, ultimately that black people cannot get free through what is always encouraged uh, through a black capitalist enterprise of starting a business, supporting a business or banking black or buying black. That is not how wealth is created. Uh, that's not how white people became wealthy. Uh, that's not how, uh, you know, you know, anybody. So, so to tell black people in a, within a white supremacist capitalist society that that's how they can become wealthy is in, in, in fact mythology. And the ultimate point, which I talk about is to discourage black people from uh, engaging the only power that anybody has, which is political power, organizational movement, or uh, building power, uh, and to you know, so instead of saying we should politically organize and, and assume political power, we're told to start businesses and support banking institutions, et cetera, and so forth. And that's the mythology that helps uh, maintain this this wild and increasing inequality. What is the role of hip hop in the music industry at large in shaping and promoting this propaganda? Well, it's tremendous. I, I talk a little bit about it in the book, but you know, historically, and going back even to to the uh, Mix What I Like book, I, where I talk about the 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 uh, the developed trend over you know some decades ago of promoting products and commercialism within the lyrics of rap music. And where there were literal business relationships between products <clears throat> and rappers to promote those products, whether it's a liquor or a clothing or some other kind of item, um, uh, that um, so hip hop does the same thing in terms of promoting black capitalism and, and black buying power and black banking, uh, because the popular form, the commercial form of rap music is meant to satisfy the ideology and political needs of the commercial world. So they don't want discussions of socialism and pan-Africanism mm -hmm. and armed struggle and, you know, all of that stuff that's that's replete in black history. They want a discussion of one form of black struggle, which is uh, black entrepreneurialism, mainstream po politicians uh, and the fantasy of inclusion. Uh, mm -hmm. So that that you know as long as there is this fantasy of a lottery victory of inclusion it reduces the likelihood of radical formation and and uh, political revolution what is the path forward for us as creatives and consumers now that this illusion is basically shattered i mean you <clears throat> i mean ethical consumption i think is look i i try to at, at least on some level ethically consume you know, I have my own personal boycotts. There are places I don't go. There are businesses mm -hmm. I don't work. There are businesses and places I do intentionally go to, to support. <laughs> the argument that that can lead to radical change, that's mythology. Mm -hmm. So it's not, I don't discourage, look, we should all look to work collectively and look to support one another. But to, that's, that's a given. Mm -hmm. 
to turn that into an argument for that 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 is in and of itself a political movement or platform or strategy or path to liberation that's a different and for me disagreeable point you know that 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 doesn't work so i don't argue that my boycotts or support of this or just you know and, uh, and lack of support of that is is going to lead to revolution um uh you know um so I, you know, we should do cooperatives and co-ops and buy mm -hmm. black and bank black. Do all of that. I do all of that. Support. You know, I had a whole ethic of, um, you know, artists that I knew or who are radical. I would make sure to buy their work, even if they tried to give it to me for free. Uh, that's great. It didn't make anybody. That didn't make anybody rich, and it wouldn't have kept anybody from being more poor. It's, it's so so what we need is what the, the those in power have always understood is is necessary you have to have political power <clears throat> and you have to set public policy to address the needs of the people between what did i just read between 2000 and um something like between 2008 and 2019 the financial elite in this country were given through public policy redistribution and a whole bunch of mechanisms like $19 trillion. That's huge. This past summer, the Hope and Cares Act here in the United States gave, you know, four to $6 trillion to the financial elite to cover their losses during the pandemic and gave mm -hmm. nothing but pennies mm -hmm. to the people. That's public policy. Mm -hmm. That's not... Wall Street wasn't smarter than anybody. They weren't, they didn't work harder than anybody. They didn't set up businesses and small businesses and talk about support our walls. No, they went to the politicians and said, hey, create money, redistribute money, do whatever the hell you have to do. Just make sure that we get our money. And then they tell us, no, you, you go start a business. You go shop responsibly. You go support your underground rapper. That's how you'll build wealth. And that's that's the that's what I'm saying is is ridiculous and mythology. One thing I also liked about uh, I mix what I like was the uh, Fanonian aspect to your analysis. So I'm wondering if you could maybe touch on propaganda and the Fanon aspect of your analysis in your first book. Just as I was saying, we can't you know shop our way to freedom. We can't music our way to freedom. Mm -hmm. This is part of a, a political struggle. And that, as Fanon pointed out, colonialism is about total conquest of land and people. And as he said, that's all. That that's what that's it. That's what it is. We can mm -hmm. get deep. He could obviously get deep, but that's what it is. So what I was trying to point out is we are in a colonial situation. That means we can't just simply write a good song, wear a good shirt, vote for a good politician. I mean, this is this is there's something more intense that has to take place here, uh, and and. Um, uh, and what we're having to deal with even more immediately, uh, despite maybe appearances, than physical violence is the psychic violence that Amos Wilson and and uh, Fanon and others have talked about different ways that 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 comes right afterwards. So we've already gone through the initial physical conquest. They enslaved our ancestors. They wiped out the indigenous people. They, you know, they suppressed hundreds of rebellions. Uh, in, imprisoned hundreds and thousands and millions of people subsequent to all of that. 
they counterintelligence programmed, assassinated and exiled our radical leaders and, you know, I mean, destroyed the movements. They've done, you know, all of this is, is, is still ongoing. Um, so they've wiped out the military wing of the, 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 the revolutionary struggle at this point so far. They destroyed the Black Liberation Army. They've, they even just re-upped the, the, the bounty on Asada Shakur yeah. uh, again mm -hmm. <laughs> last month. You know, um, so what, they've, what comes after that is a, a, a never-ending wave of propaganda and psychological warfare. Uh, and you know, obviously we don't have time to get into it now, but the, the, the under, one of the many underappreciated histories of this country is the history of the rise of propaganda in the communication system in this country. And the point I made about Harold Innes earlier is, is perfectly appropriate to this history. Those in power have looked to consciously develop mechanisms to manage our consciousness and our public opinion or, or manufacture our consent, as I said earlier, as, as Chomsky and, and Ed Herman had pointed out, you know, um, uh, that this is the primary way that they manage people's behavior and keep us more or less in line. So um, uh, we cannot underestimate and we should not underappreciate the levels at, uh, 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 or the extent to which they have worked to do this, that those in power have worked to do this, whether it is uh, um, uh, literally writing thousands of television shows and films to put a positive light on the military and the police, um, whether it is it, it is placing you know CIA assets in in, in media outlets and journalism outlets, whether it is you know uh, you know all kinds of assassination and psychological warfare operations that have gone on, uh, whether it is simply the consolidation of the commercial media apparatus into. Uh, you know, a handful of, of corporate entities whose literal legal mandate is to simply make money for their stockholders. You know, all of this creates a situation where uh, depth and substance and breadth of ideas and radical ideas are not going to find a lot of room, not going to find a lot of time. And this is done intentionally because as those in power have, have mentioned, they want what they call full spectrum dominance. They want you know, the internet is military technology in its origins. Uh, as you talk about hip hop, as Jay Rue said decades ago, the, the, the same chip that powers my video game console powers nuclear arms. You know, the, the, you know we're using a version of the technology that is powering satellites and remote uh, 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 drone strike capabilities and surveillance capabilities. I mean, that's... <laughs> That's what. That's why I emphasize Fanon that the real purpose here is to conquer land and people, to extract resources and wealth from the labor of others, to dominate, to set up a situation where the colonized have a psychological protective network that assures that their white supremacist colonial status will not be assaulted. Former CBS executive, or was it ABC executive, Les Moonves said during the Trump campaign in in 2012 uh 16 rather he said that you know trump's campaign may be bad for the country but it's good for cbs or good for abc in other words we're here to make money we're not here to provide you know information and sound logic and reason 
uh, and if it means destroying the country so that our profit margins will go up, that right there, I think, crystallizes the ethic of the of the the media uh, because they would rather have Trump spouting nonsense than have uh, a, a more substantive conversation that that uh, with anybody else that might lead to even even though they recognize that he is disagreeable. Mm -hmm. They would rather give him airtime for their own other nefarious political financial uh, uh, reasons uh, than uh, allow for more logical and substantive conversation that might threaten their ideological and financial position. How does the gentrification, otherwise known as forced relocation, impact hip hop and underground press broadly? And as a follow-up, what are the ways in which the internet is implicated in this process of gentrification? Gentrification obviously is is points to the colonial status, as mm -hmm. as uh, you know, one of my favorite professors, Dr. James Turner, had pointed out years ago. The colonial reality of of Black America is evident in the gentrification process. It's colonial removal. I mean, the the inability for communities to protect and maintain their their possession of land or territory is that's colonization right there. Uh, and when you can dislocate and uh, uh, and interrupt and uh, divide and disperse communities, obviously it's going to interrupt cultural transmission. Um, you know, as I pointed out, I think actually, and others have pointed out, uh, the it's it's kind of like what Huey P. Newton once said about intercommunalism that there that that there are no that there there are no real protected boundaries or borders anymore, and one of the things that you know that that those in power can do the United States in particular, uh, is is project its its messaging across any border into any community, uh, so it's not only the physical gentrification and, and, and colonial removal of black populations it's the inability of any population to protect itself intellectually or cognitively from dominant messaging as all of that is imposed through us through this incredibly sophisticated and penetrative and pervasive media apparatus. So more, I think, interruptive even than the physical dislocation has been the ability for uh, record labels and, and their lawyers through copyright in particular, which is something I tried to write about, to literally redefine and reframe and repurpose and rebrand and reform hip hop. So that uh, as others have pointed out, Chuck D and others, you know, for Public Enemy many years ago, the beats that were produced for Public Enemy with all the sampling uh, that is now owned not by other artists, but by white lawyers and corporations who bought up the rights to those other artists music uh, you can't make beats like that anymore. So literally the sound, the, the sound of rap music, the sound of hip hop has changed uh, from my boom bap era to whatever it, whatever it is today, good or like it or not, it doesn't matter. That's not, that's irrelevant. The sound from today um, that is, is, is less likely to rely on multiple samples uh, is is a product largely of uh, uh, an early 2000s era, 90s era shift in corporate control over copyright and intellectual property, which 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 is again part of the process of the the music industry that that um, assures that artists have no control over and 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 don't make the lion's share of the 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 wealth uh, that that the, that they produce. 
um, and it's even worse now. You talk about comparisons, it's worse now. Artists used to be able to count on going on tour to make their money. Now with 360 degree deals where everything someone does under their brand is taxed, so to speak, by their label, it's even harder for artists to do that. Again, the internet, I wanna say, what is this, the late 60s? The, I forgot the exact year, but the, the, the internet was, you know, as initially was, was created by the military, US military to uh, allow it to communicate between computers on a private network. Uh, and as it got e expanded and commercialized, um, it has taken on much of that same kind of work. I mean, people like to think of it as a free, or at least used to be a free open space. It has always, uh, and, and ever increasingly so, be become the tool of intelligence agencies, the military industrial complex, uh, I mean, there's all kinds of people, you know, you know, there's Operation Sock Puppet. There's all kinds of examples of how that of, of how that's done. But as I said, they want full spectrum dominance. They're saying that, again, communication in general, never mind just the Internet, uh, even what we call entertainment uh, in, 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 in the language of those in power has been a mechanism for uh, uh, maintaining political order and projecting American um, dominance globally, um, you know, whether it's putting black people even in the background in movies in the 1950s that would be exported all over the world to make it seem like black people were doing better here than ever, or sending jazz artists around the world in the 50s to promote a, a, an open American democracy in the post-World War II era, or, or sending rappers on the same mission in the 2000s. Uh, to promote a, a positive America to the world, you know the 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 use of art and entertain so-called entertainment and and media as propaganda for the state is is as old as the state itself. I mean, even mm -hmm. as Patricia Bradley pointed out in her great book on propaganda and slavery, I think that's the exact title. Uh, she talks about you know people drink the beer Sam Adams. Well, Sam Adams was a white supremacist propagandist who only used the word slavery in reference to what he and his white colonists suffered from the British and never talked about what was going on with the Africans he was enslaving and others were enslaving here in the United States. So from the beginning of this country, propaganda, as my, my brother, Dr. Todd Burroughs, Todd Stephen Burroughs pointed out to me years ago, you gotta look at this history, it's deep. You know, uh, when, when, when Christmas Addicts was, was killed at the Boston Massacre, the, 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 the so-called Boston Massacre was, was it? A handful of people were killed, but one of them was black. Uh, when Paul Revere went on his famous ride to encourage the colonists to fight against the British, and he he, he was a pamphleteer, he was a, a media maker, mm -hmm. and he printed all these pamphlets, and he wanted to use the Boston so-called massacre as, as propaganda against the British. But he knew you can't put a black man on the cover of a pamphlet to inspire white people to fight other whites. So he literally changed addicts to a white man for that pamphlet. So my point is from the beginning, even before this country was a country, propaganda has been, it's even again, more than it's military, more than it's, it's you know, even more than the, the, I know this sounds crazy even for me to say it, but even more than the lash and the whip and the chains, it was the propaganda of, of there is nowhere else for you to go. There is no better world for the enslaved to have. That was, or, or the propaganda of the version of Christianity that was, was more of a mechanism of, of social control than 
the physical. And all of it ultimately failed as everybody was rebelling all the time, which is why they were forced into a civil war uh, um, that they claim was to, to free black people, but it was really to manage the freedom that black people were going to get themselves one way or another. So again, another conversation. Um, but I don't know. So again, I say all this to say that 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 propaganda and dominant messaging is, is has always been essential, and the music industry, uh, certainly, and entertainment, uh, what we call entertainment, is, has always played a part in that. Uh, um, and, and again, from those from from the perspective of those in power, listen. Uh, before he died, Zbigniew Brzezinski, one of the main um, power players here in the United States, he said that one of the things that was going to protect America as an empire, unlike any other empire of the past, was the Internet. And he said specifically because most people use the Internet, it's it's the dominant language is, is in English, which is a cultural uh, imposition mm -hmm. that that reorients people to the West. Uh, and allows them to project their messaging into the world um, at the speed of a click in ways that could never have been done uh, when the Roman Empire or the British Empire were, were the empires of the day. Now the United States has the internet, as he argued, uh, and would be protected. And I <clears throat> think that's largely correct as, as again, <clears throat> as wonderful and expressive as it can get on the internet, as radical as it can get, it gets plenty right wing and plenty uh, vicious on the other end as well. And it's much more well organized and funded on the other side as well um, uh, and, and managed. So uh, the internet is, is absolutely a tool that is allowed for expansion of drone strike programs, surveillance technology, advertising, uh, uh, and, and it is presided over an increased gap and divide in race and wealth and income. Uh, you know, I mean, again, the, the, look at the, what is it, 50 years of the internet? Have we seen an end of war? Have we seen a, a reduction of war even? Have we seen an end of sex trafficking, slavery? Uh, I mean, name it, mm -hmm. name it. And certainly the, the gaps in wealth and income have only gotten worse. The percentage of CEO, the CEOs mm -hmm. have captured of the, is, is increased. I mean, nothing, nothing has gotten better uh, as a result of the internet, we even we don't even have you know for all the people say about the the goodness the way the internet the internet may help activists and organizing, the biggest the biggest protest movements exist took place before the internet. We had the Million Man March in 1995. So anyway, that's all for today. 1919 is launching our fifth magazine issue titled Free Dreams next Friday, February 26 and will feature Afrofuturist artwork, essays, interviews, poetry, and more. It was a labor of love and powered by community and collective struggle. So huge thank you to all who contributed to making it a reality. Pre-orders are up, so make sure you order your copy today.